Good morning, everyone. It is really good to be together with you guys. Such a pleasure. And you guys are a really good choir. Uh, I suspect you at home are a great choir as well. Uh, but those of you in the room, uh, you guys blessed me. And certainly did the Holy Spirit. So, my friends, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts? Chapter 2 is where we will pick up again once more today. Acts chapter 2, we are in the final few verses of this chapter. <clears throat> this is uh, our fourth week now in chapter 2. And I'll remind you, chapter 2 of Acts is primarily about the events of Pentecost and uh, the response uh, to the events of that particular day. Again, Pentecost being uh, the Jewish feast, also called the Feast of Weeks, in which these folks gathered there in Jerusalem to celebrate this particular feast, and God poured out his spirit in a special way on that particular day. And we've been spending our time together looking at that first, what that, what that looked like. What were the signs? What were the wonders? What were the things that were associated with the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit? We did that about three weeks ago. Then Peter explained it, as you recall. Men of Israel, this is that, he said. And he went on to explain what was going on. What were the people observing? What were they seeing? What did the scripture say about those things and how these things would come about. Uh, and then last week, we looked at sort of the immediate implications of the coming of the Holy Spirit. What kind of an impact did his coming have on those people that were gathered there? And we spent our time looking at that. I called them the sort of the short-term or the near-term impacts uh, impact of the Holy Spirit. Today, we're going to look at the long-term impact of the Holy Spirit. So the people were moved on that particular day, but how did that change them going forward? How were their lives different, not just that day or that week, but how were their lives forever different because of the events of that particular morning? And I, I'll suggest this to you. It's a bold statement, I think, but I'll suggest to you, if there's not a long-term impact to the work of the Holy Spirit, then I think we can call into question whether it was actually a work of the Holy Spirit. And so today we're going to be digging into the long-term impact of the, Holy, of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Did I pray yet? Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would work in our hearts. We pray that you would use your word Lord, to really impact some deep places, some foundational places within each one of us. We pray that you would bless us as a result of coming and considering these things as individuals, as families, Lord, as a body of believers, bless us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we'll pick up today in verse 42. I'm going to read our section, verse 42 to 47. It says, now they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and their belongings, and they were distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. 
So as I pointed out, Peter gets up to explain what is going on, and the immediate response of the people, they, they ask the question in so many words, brothers, what do we need to do? How shall we respond to this? You've just convinced us that we are guilty for the blood of Jesus Christ. What can we do? Is there anything that we can do? And Peter responded and said to them, you need to repent. You need to change your mind. You need to change your thinking about who Jesus is and how you responded to him during his earthly ministry just months earlier. You need to change your thinking in response to that. And you need to be baptized as a sign of that particular change. Peter said to them, you need to repent and you need to be baptized. That's a wonderful immediate result. Thousands of people came forward. It says about 3,000 people came forward. I have to imagine Peter and the others were shocked, excited, stunned. What, what are we going to do here? How do we respond to this? All of that is wonderful. But even more significant, I think, is what we're going to consider today. And that's these long-term impacts. What kind of a change did that morning Pentecost morning, have on these people perpetually going forward. The reality, the proof, if you will, of the coming of the Holy Spirit in their lives was continuance. There was a continual work. Now, this is not to imply that we're not going to stumble from time to time in our walks. Hopefully, we never will. But it's not to imply that we will never stumble, that we will never fall, that we'll never have a struggle in our walk, and oh boy, you must not have the Holy Spirit because you stumbled here. It's not to imply those things. But what I am trying to say pretty clearly, and I think the scripture is, is that a person will steadily be moving forward. There'll be this steady process uh, of growth or progress in their walk with the Lord as the Holy Spirit continues to refine them into the image of our Lord. And verses 42 through 47 demonstrates the evidence of this steady growing process for these disciples, the impact of the Holy Spirit upon these disciples. And so we'll start right there with verse 42. You'll notice it informs us that this brand new collection of believers, having traveled to Jerusalem as devout Jews, ready to celebrate a holiday they probably celebrated many, many times before, God entered into their life, he transformed them, and it tells us in verse 47 that they began to devote themselves to certain things. Now, if you have one of the older versions, a King James type version, you'll notice it says there that they continued steadfastly in these things. They devoted themselves, they continued steadfastly in these particular things. And he goes on and tells us what they are. It's four things. It's the apostles' teaching, it's the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and as it says there, the prayers. And these are the things that I will suggest to you are the foundation upon which every believer in Jesus Christ and every church, every gathering of believers of Jesus Christ need to have as their foundation in their lives. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and as it says, the prayers. Now, the first thing I want you to take notice of is they devote themselves to each of these things. And so if you, if you read verse 42, you could read it this way. It's mistaken to do so, but you could read it this way. They devoted themselves to the, to the apostles' teaching, and from time to time they fellowshiped and they prayed and they, they broke the bread. But the way that this is worded in, in the original is this way. It's a little cumbersome. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 
They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, and they devoted themselves to prayer. So this church, this gathering of believers, was a well-balanced group of people that were committed to each one of these areas in their lives. And it's because they were continued to each one of these areas in their lives that they began to grow. The foundation was solid so that the building, the edifice, could be erected upon it. They continued steadfastly in each one of these things. There are many churches, there's many Christians and individuals. I think a lot of us, we do this from time to time. We get really committed to fellowship, for instance. And we'll gather with other people, but we spend very little time looking into God's word, studying God's word. Our prayer life is neglected, communion, and so on. Or there are other churches that are really into the word of God, but they don't pursue common life with one another, fellowship with one another. Or perhaps some other, one of these other four areas that I mentioned is weak. It's those churches and it's those individual Christians that are devoting themselves to each one of these areas that have a good, solid foundation from which they can live their Christian life from. And I would suggest to you, and, and, and go beyond even suggesting, I would say to you, this is what God would have for us as a body of believers and as individual Christians. The word that's translated devoted, again, in your, in your Bibles, it might say continued steadfastly in these things. It's a word which speaks of single-minded fidelity or um, single-minded fidelity to a certain course of action. And for them, I don't know how four things can be single-mindedly devoted to, but they were singly-mindedly devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. One lexicon I read, a lexicon is sort of like an expanded dictionary. It said this, to be steadfastly attentive and give unremitting care to something. Again, for these believers, it's the apostles' teaching, it's fellowship, it's the breaking of bread, and it is the prayers. So let's unpack each one of these things. The first thing is this. It says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, of course, for these new believers, they had no written New Testament yet. That wouldn't come for another 25 uh, to 50 years, depending on the particular book that we're describing. And so as such, they wholly depended upon the Old Testament, and you recall Peter's sermon, how much of the Old Testament he brought into his sermon, and in addition to the Old Testament, they were relying upon the teaching of the apostles, the teaching that had been delivered to them by the Lord himself. Remember, that was even one of the requirements that they had established for the replacement for Judas was that he was with the Lord from the beginning and he heard the Lord teach these particular things. And so these, this early church was heavily dependent upon these apostles to communicate to them the things that Jesus had communicated to them. The apostle Paul, he would say, a little bit later on in 1 Corinthians, I have, for I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Again, as I said in Peter's sermon, these weren't his, his ideas, these weren't his thoughts, you know, this is his musings or something. He gave to them the word of God. And Paul would say the same. And so the phrase, this phrase, the apostles' teaching, it refers to the inspired teaching of the apostles, which would eventually be put down in our New Testaments for you and I to consider and to look into. 
Here we are 2,000 years later, and to be healthy in our Christian walks and as a body of believers, we need to be devoted to what they were devoted to. That's the teaching of the Word of God. So the first church that we see here from the book of Acts, they were what we might call a learning and a studying church. The first thing that the author of the book, again, Luke, the first thing that Luke points out about this church, this group gathering of believers that he observed is that they had the practice of looking into and studying the word of God with one another. Now think about this, because a week earlier, two weeks earlier, whatever the time frame was, on the day of Pentecost, that must have been one of the most amazing experiences a church could have ever experienced. And what could have developed in the people is, oh, I hope what happened two weeks ago happens again today. I just hope there's the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and these things. I hope the pastor doesn't teach so that we could have a pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And this church, though, wasn't chasing after the experience, were they? God might bring the experience, but what this church was chasing after was knowing God's word. Because when we know God's word, we get a better understanding of who God is, the God of the word. And so that's what it was they were pursuing. That's what they were devoted to. That's what they continued steadfastly seeking. A spirit-filled church will be a Bible-teaching church. A spirit-filled Christian will be a Bible-learning Christian. And so we devote ourselves to it. Of course, with a, an appetite, we're hungry for it. And then we certainly we have this desire to obey it. And so as God reveals his will, his direction, his guidance in our lives, as he puts a finger on an area of your life, you're studying something in the Bible, and the Lord just he reminds you of how that particular narrative, how you could like almost fit right into that narrative. And I wonder what I would be like if I was Joseph and my brothers just did this to me, and then all of a sudden the Lord is like, well, not too different from what your cousin did to you. Oh, yeah. And the Lord all of a sudden begins to reveal, you know, I responded very differently. I wonder if the Lord would have me. And he's teaching you through his word. And he's illuminating it. And as he does, you don't just say, well, that is what it is. You say, Lord, how would you have me to change? What do you want me to do? And the Lord begins to minister to you through his word. He does that for us as a body of believers. He does that for us individually. A healthy church is one that continues steadfastly in the study of God's word. A healthy Christian is one who continues steadfastly in the study of God's word. So the first thing that they devoted themselves was to the word of God. The second thing that we see in verse 42, it says, and again, remember that phrase, they devoted themselves, applies to each one of these areas. It says, and they devoted themselves to the fellowship. So the second long-term impact of the coming of the Holy Spirit that we observe here in Acts chapter 2 is they became a people that were devoted to the fellowship. Now the Greek word that is used for fellowship is one perhaps you have heard tossed around. You may not know Greek, but you know in the, in the church we oftentimes will use these terms. It's the Greek word koinonia. And it's a familiar word for a lot of us. The idea of koinonia is to hold something in common with another or others. 
Matter of fact, the type of Greek that the Old Testament was, or excuse me, the New Testament was written in, it's different from the Greek that is spoken today. There's some similarities, but there's a difference between modern, the modern day Greek language and the first century Greek language. The type of Greek that is written down in our Bibles is called Koine Greek, Koinonia, Koine Greek. And what it simply meant was a common Greek. It was a language that around the whole empire, wherever the Greek language went, there was a common language that people could understand. It's so interesting that the gospel would come in a time when there was a common language around the world that could spread that gospel. The Lord knew what he was doing. But that's Koine Greek. The word that we have here where it says they were devoted to something was they were devoted to Koinonia. They were devoted to, again, the definition, they held something in common with another or others. So the second transformative nature of the filling of the Holy Spirit on that day of Pentecost was the desire of these new believers to be with the people of God and share things in common with the people of God. Matter of fact, we see that down in verse 45, that one of the things they shared in common was their possessions and their belongings. And so one way that we share with one another is through our possessions and our belongings that we share with one another. But fellowship goes way beyond that to include one another's joys and one another's burdens. I might put those on different ends of the spectrum. Here, you can have some of my possessions to help you during this particular time. But I'm also going to enter into your life's joys and into your life's difficulties. It's all in between there. The Apostle Paul, he said this. He said, rejoice with those, he's writing to believers, he said, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Not all of us do that, do we? Sometimes somebody's rejoicing, we're like, how come they always get the good stuff? Or how come everything works out for them but not for me? Or sometimes somebody is weeping and we're like, you know, I don't like to ask them how they're doing because they're going to get into this long story and then I'm going to have to listen. But Koinonia we share these things in common. So your difficulties become my difficulties. Your blessings become my blessings. I'm excited. I'm happy for the good work that God is doing in your life and through you and the way that he's blessing you. And I'm hurting when you're hurting. That's the type of fellowship that these men and women were devoted to, that they were pursuing, that they continued after steadfastly. Now, we often hear the word fellowship in the Christian church, and we call to mind, we picture in our mind some folks hanging out in the fellowship hall, sharing a cup of coffee, sharing some cookies, giggling a little, talking with one another. How's it going? How's work? You know, oh, that's great. How are the kids? How about that weather? And then we go home, and how come you're, you're later than normal? Oh, we were fellowshipping. I had 48 cookies, a cup of coffee, and we talked about meaningless things with one another. It's almost like this Christian cocktail party that has sort of worked itself into the church, where we mingle with one another. But please, no. Fellowshipping with other believers goes way beyond that. It may start in that particular place. It gives us an excuse to share a cookie to go a little bit further. And I'm not against cookies. As a matter of fact, a good sister in the church brought me some cookies today. And I'm open to any offering of cookies you might want to bring. But fellowshipping with other believers is praying together with other believers. 
It's serving side by side with others and picking up the slack when that person needs you to help a little bit and you do, they doing the same for you. As I said, it's rejoicing with them and sometimes it's weeping with them. One thing I'm coming to discover as I'm getting older, I'm not old, but as I'm getting older, is it's growing older with others. And in that process of and sharing in life experiences with other people. It's not merely sharing our possessions as the verse seems to apply in verse 45, but it goes beyond that to sharing our lives with each other. So true fellowship must be more than socializing with one another. True fellowship, as exemplified in the scriptures, it requires an investment on my, of my heart into the hearts or into other people's lives. Again, their problems becomes my problems. It means the bearing of my heart and soul before others and allowing them to safely do so for me as well. That's true fellowship. That's what God desires for us. And that's what healthy churches and healthy individual Christians, that's what they pursue in their lives. That's what this first church was pursuing. The body of Christ, that's the church, we need one another. And as we do, and because we do, what the Spirit of God does is he begins to knit our hearts together into one common body, much like a healthy husband and wife relationship have their hearts knit together as one. That's what God desires to do with us as a church. And so the second evidence then of the transformative nature of the filling of the Holy Spirit on this day of Pentecost is that these new believers enjoyed and then they pursued a desire to share life in common with other believers. All right, so we, we have those two ideas, the word of God and this idea of fellowship. I'll also draw to your attention before moving on. Notice this, as these believers were devoted to the word of God, and when you're devoted in your life to the word of God, it always increases your devotion and your understanding of the God of the word. And so the natural byproduct then of a devotion to the God of the word is an increased devotion to the people of God. And so it's as we get to know the Lord better through his word that our desire for fellowship, our longing for fellowship with other believers increases as well. And so if you neglect your study of the word of God, you'll be less and less interested in fellowshipping with other believers. It's when your vertical relationship with God is growing that your horizontal relationship with God's people will grow as well. And in the same way, you begin to neglect your horizontal relationship with other believers, you'll begin to discover you have less and less of a desire to pursue your relationship with the Lord as well. Does that make sense? There's hand gestures today. There you go. You've all been blessed like six times uh, this morning. A third area we'll look at in a moment. Notice it says in verse 42, again, taking that common phrase that goes with each one of these words, it says, and they devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread. Now, the breaking of the bread, it refers both to common meals with one another, but also to the Lord's Supper, or what we commonly call communion. It refers really to both of those ideas. Now, Certainly, the practice of, of, of celebrating communion, that sounds a whole lot more important, 
sounds a whole lot more spiritual than sharing a meal with other people. But both of these practices are important for different reasons within the church and within the lives of individual Christians. Let's take the first one, the idea of partaking in meals with one another. When we partake in meals with one another, it goes back to that idea of sharing life together with one another. We have to eat in order to survive. This is the norm of what life is. And yet we are going away from just grabbing a quick bite for ourselves, and you do it with your family. You know what? We're going to get the whole family together tonight. Some, some of us, we do that every single night. Some of us, we're busy, we're going different directions, but we make it a plan. We're coming together Sunday night, like the Reagan family on Blue Bloods or something like that. We're coming together to enjoy each other's company. During the early days of the church, these believers, they would engage in what they called love feast. Potlucks is what we might call them today. Where the church, you know, the, the Bible study portion or what have you, the worship portion in, in song is going to begin at this time. But everybody come a couple of hours earlier and we're going to enjoy, enjoy a meal with one another. They called them love feast. We could probably call them potluck suppers. Common meals with one another, what they do is they provide an opportunity for us to share in the daily responsibility of life with other people. For some, it provides an opportunity for us to provide for the needs of those that are less fortunate, which was certainly the case in the first century church. And it's certainly the case in our day as well. And so I can generously, if I have more, I can generously share and bless others that may have less. But it allows us to share in the daily responsibility of life. Additionally, what a common meal does is it allows us to slow down together from the running around. And it allows us to sit with some others and to begin to commune with others. What a common meal will do is allow people to talk together and to build relationships with one another. It will allow us to hear how the other person's day or week, or month, or life is going. So I can begin to care about the other person because now I know a little bit about the other person. What common meals will do, they allow for uh, us to begin forming a heart for one another and a concern for the good and the bad things that are going on in the other person's life and that they're dealing with. And so I want to encourage you in this. A number of years ago, we were doing here with frequency what we called koinonia dinners. And the purpose of the koinonia dinners were for people that may not necessarily know one another to gather together for a meal and to begin this process of building a relationship and entering into a deeper than, hey, how you doing? Or, yeah, I saw you the other day. It was nice. But to really begin to enter in and to begin to share life with one another. Now, of course, in the day and age in which we live, a lot of us have concerns, COVID-related concerns about gathering together and doing this sort of thing. But there are some practical ways you can continue to do this today, even if you do have some of those concerns about gathering with others in a closed-in space. And so when the weather gets a little bit warmer, you can have picnics. And I'd encourage you to be pursuing those particular things. My wife and I and a, a group of others, uh, a number of different couples, three, four different couples, we, we've been having meals together once a month through Zoom. And we make our little meal, and we sit together, and we eat it while they're eating theirs. And I get jealous. Look at that. They got good stuff and, and you know, this kind of thing or whatever. But we begin to enter into each, other, each other's life even through those things. 
So there's ways that it can happen. Even if you're concerned today, you can be pursuing fellowship with other believers in this way. And I, I really want to encourage you to be doing that with others, particularly some folks that, you know, yeah, I remember your name, but I don't really know you. Connect with those folks. Look for ways to be doing that. Now, the second idea, though, about this idea of breaking bread, it goes beyond the common meals. And the second idea that is being communicated is what we call the celebration of the Lord's table, or we call it communion oftentimes here. This church was committed to celebrating communion with one another. Not just the practice of celebrating communion, but the significance of what is going on in the celebration of communion. I mentioned earlier the idea of the love feast that they enjoyed, the potluck suppers that they enjoyed. Those suppers would communicate with the time of communion, or not communicate, they would um, conclude with the time of communion at the end. A time where they would turn their hearts and their minds to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That work was ever before them. This wasn't something that happened, in their case, months ago, a year ago, in our case, thousands of years ago, and they mention it every Good Friday, but it was something they continually brought before their mind and before their thinking. You remember Jesus, when he was with his disciples in the Passover meal, we call it, um, you know, the Last Supper. And in that conversation, he said to them, do this in remembrance of me. Now, you go back and you look at the context of that passage. Jesus wasn't saying, look, I want you guys to be, just call me to mind often. Think about me. Think about the good times we had. Think about, you know, the places we traveled and the, the response that people had to our teaching. Think about the healings and the miracles. Think about all these ones. That's not the context of that passage. The context of the passage, when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, the context was the breaking of the bread and the pouring out of the cup which Jesus said foreshadowed what he was about to do on the cross. Jesus was telling them to call to mind with regularity his work on the cross. And so when we celebrate communion, we do so to call to mind the suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in the process of that, what we're doing is we're calling to mind and we're freshly considering that though we were once poor, helpless sinners, that though we were once an offense to the righteousness and the holiness of God, that God in his mercy spoke into our hearts the message of the gospel. And he prompted us, he moved us to receive the gift of salvation. And because we did, God had transformed us. We've become a new creation in Christ. That old man is passing away. All things are becoming new. When we celebrate communion, we call that to mind again. Now, for some of you, that work occurred in your life a year ago. It's fresh in your thinking. For others of us, that may have happened in our lives 30 years ago, 40 years ago. 50 or 60 years ago for some of the folks in our congregation. And it's easy to kind of forget where we once were. It's easy to forget what God has done in our lives, the place that he has taken us from, the change in our heart that he has done. Every time we come back to the communion table, we remind ourselves afresh of what God has done. And we encourage ourselves with what he still desires to do. 
the change that he still wants to make within us. This church was committed to bringing that to mind, calling that work of Christ to mind. Because of the cross, our sense of despair has been replaced with a sense of joy. Because of the cross, we now have a purpose in this life that we are living. And because of the cross, we can face the uncertainty of this life. And I like to kind of pick one word to describe each year of my life. I think a good word for 2020, last year, was sort of this uncertainty. What is going on in our world? What's it going to be like next week? What's it going to be like next month here? But because of the cross, I can face even uncertainty with hope. Because I know what lies beyond the cross. And I know what lies, excuse me, beyond this world that we're living in. This world is not my home. I want it to be as wonderful and comfortable as it can be while I'm here. But my home is in heaven. Your home is in heaven. And because of the cross, we can have a brand new outlook on the things that we have to deal with and that we go through here. The cross of Christ, it changes everything for the believer. And so no wonder these believers, they would remind themselves again and again and again what happened at the cross of Christ. The, The early church continued steadfastly in the celebration of communion so that they could remind themselves of what happened at Calvary's Hill. Now, the fourth and final area that we observed these disciples devoted themselves to was the prayers, as it says. They devoted themselves to the prayers. Now, some of your versions might word this, they devoted themselves to prayer. English Standard, which is what I use, uh, says they devoted themselves to the prayers. Some of the older versions, King James and others, will say it that way as well. In the original, there's a definite article there. And that's why uh, some of those other versions will say the prayers. And it seems to refer to something formal, as opposed to they devoted themselves to the idea of praying, to they devoted themselves to something more formal, the prayers, or where the people would come together in a formalized setting to make their request known unto the Lord. The importance of gathering together. Prayer is an expression of our dependence upon the Lord. And so the fact that these folks continued steadfastly in prayer expresses their complete dependence upon the Lord. Does that make sense? Prayer expresses our dependence upon the Lord. These guys continued steadfastly in it, which demonstrates their complete dependence upon God as exemplified by their steadfast prayer. And so when we as individuals and as a church, when we neglect to pray, we're indicating that we have very little recognition of our true need to the Lord. How easy it is to go down that particular path where prayer can be neglected in our walks with the Lord. Think about it. When you are most led to cry, when are you most led to cry out in God, to God in prayer? It's typically when you find yourself in a place of desperation. And so you get the news from the doctor, come back on Monday, and you go right home on Friday, and you send a prayer request on behalf of yourself or your loved one to the prayer team. Please be praying about this. You move to that place of desperation. When you have just lost your job, then you begin to pray about a job. 
You're moved to this place of desperation. Typically, when we find ourselves in a place of desperation, that's when we cry out to the Lord in our prayers. Prayers, we realize there's no other place I can turn. And so when we neglect prayer in our life, it's an indicator that we're not as dependent upon God as perhaps we once were or as perhaps we know that we need to be. These guys here, this early church, they were absolutely devoted, as it says, to the prayer. It's the final indicator here of the Holy Spirit's presence in this early church and the impact he had on this early church. He moved the people to have an absolute devotion to the prayers. These, this was a group of men and women that knew they needed the Lord for strength and guidance. These men and women knew they needed the Lord for his provision. These men and women knew they needed God for wisdom and the ability to persevere. And so they desperately cried out to him for each of those things. They, were, they continued steadfastly in prayer. Now, as I've unpacked this, this verse a bit, I've sort of interchangeably gone back from they devoted themselves and to what some of the other versions say is they continued steadfastly in these things. And typically when I'm studying a passage of scripture, I, I like to kind of stay with a particular uh, version of the scripture. But I, I think it was helpful, it is helpful in this passage to use either of those two phrases. And the reason why is I think they sort of communicate something differently. Devoted themselves, communicate something a little bit differently than this idea of continuing steadfastly in something. And so when it says that they continued steadfastly in these things, to me that speaks to this idea that that's what others observed. And so Luke, for instance, or others that are kind of pulled back and looking, they observe, you know, these people continue steadfastly. They're always doing these particular things. Reading the word, studying the word, praying with one another, fellowshipping and breaking the bread or celebrating communion with one another. And so that speaks to what others could see and what others could, uh, can observe. The idea of they devoted themselves to something, that speaks to me of something more that is internal. That speaks to me to more of something that was a commitment on their part to run after these things. And so other people observed these things, and these are things that these people were committed to as well. And as they were committed to them, they began to grow. And as they began to grow, they recommitted themselves even more to those things because they saw the benefit of it. Sort of this cyclical nature of these things in their lives and the impact that it was having. The Holy Spirit had come, and he had left an impact on this early church, a long-term impact on this early church. Not just some temporary change, but that one that went on for centuries now as the church has continued to go on now for the last 2,000 years. Everything else we're going to read in the book of Acts comes from the foundation that was laid here in Acts chapter 2. It's that significant. It's that important. And so I want to encourage you in this. Take inventory of your walk with Christ. How's your Bible study life going, corporately and individually? What's your common life like with other Christians? Could it improve? Are there areas that you can invest into the lives of others more and allow others to invest into your life? Because we can shut people down, can't we? As people will sort of, you know, how you doing? I'm fine. Or, you know, I don't feel like going to that setting because they're going to ask me about how I'm doing. And I don't want to tell anybody how I'm doing. 
And so how's your fellowship life like? What's your devotion to the gospel like? Do you tell yourself the truth of the gospel frequently? Do you meditate on the work of Christ on the cross and its impact on who you are today as a Christian? And the last area of the prayer, are you devoted to the Lord? Are you desperate for the Lord? What's your prayer life like with, other, with others and even by yourself in your prayer closet? Well, that's what it said of these particular folks here. Going on to verse 43, it says, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, it's important to note the all wasn't of these believers. Even though they were observing these believers and what was going on with these believers, the all that came upon them was a, an all of God. The God that they had devoted themselves to. God was at work among these believers and the people were taking notice of that reality. There was a reverence for the life-changing work of God that was being developed by those that were observing these things amongst the people of God. And I think we've said this before, the greatest and most powerful miracle of God is his ability to change a hardened heart and create within that person a heart of reverence toward him. And when people see that and when people observe that, they become, begin to be drawn toward that. Look, I don't know what's going on with you, but I sure would like to know. Tell me. They're drawn toward it. These believers, without even a word, were beginning to testify to the goodness of God. And people were hearing, quote-unquote, really seeing that testimony. There's a, there's a quote, a statement that has been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Not that his dad was a sissy. Uh, that's the place that he came. St. Francis of Assisi. I don't even know how to say it. You get the point. He said this, apparently. He said, preach the gospel at all times. And if necessary, use words. Now, I think some Christians hear that and you think, oh, I like that. That means I never have to talk about Jesus. I can just be a nice person and preach the gospel. That's not what Francis was trying to get at. He wasn't saying you don't have to proclaim the, word, the gospel of Jesus Christ with words. The Apostle Paul said this, more, more important than St. Francis. The Apostle Paul said, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard of? And how can they hear without someone telling them or preaching to them? So how can a person come to believe something if nobody ever talks to them about that particular, nobody ever explains it to them? Now, I'll go further, though. On the other hand, why should they believe if the person telling them doesn't seem to believe it even themselves? Why even spend time listening any further to that person that is witnessing to me if it's not having an impact on their life. I think that's where Francis is going. And these early disciples here, the impact of the gospel on their lives is being observed by other people. It's evident to other people. It's drawing other people. People should see the impact that Christ is having on your life. People should notice that impact, and very likely they're going to be drawn because of that. And that's what's going on here in Acts chapter 2. If you go down to verse 46, it says, And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, day by day, those 
that were being saved. So the life that these men and these women were living, it honored the Lord and it was attractive to those that were observing them. Again, as verse 47 says, God used it to draw people to himself. The Lord added day by day those that were being saved. Going back to verse 44, which I skipped over, it said, And all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and their belongings, and they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had, had need. So significant was the work of God in their lives, so significant was the bond of fellowship that, had, that they were enjoying, that these believers no longer saw their possessions as their possessions and their belonging as their belongings, but rather they began to share all things in common. They even began, as it says, to sell their possessions and belongings so that they could meet the need of others when, the, when such needs arose. These believers, they shared such a koinonia, remember all things in common, among themselves that one person's needs became each person's needs so that it prompted them to do whatever was needed to meet that other person's need. It was as one commentator I read, he explained it this way. He said, it was a unity of heart and interest in which the natural selfishness of the fallen condition was swallowed up in the fullness of love, which the sense of the divine love had birthed within them. Isn't that beautiful? You're like, I don't know. I don't get it. Uh, it's too many words. The sentence was too long. You lost me. All right, it'll be in the notes. You can go back, you can read it, and you can consider it further. There's another Greek word that comes from the same Greek word koinonia. I'll try and say it. It's the word koinakinos or something to that effect. And that means generosity. So koinye, common, a generosity I share with others here. God by nature is generous. And those who share in God inevitably are going to share in his nature of generosity. And so as God is changing you, he's going to birth within you a greater desire to be generous with others that have needs, even as God has been generous to you. Caring for one another in practical ways is another part of true koinonia that's going to manifest itself in the life the healthy life of an individual Christian, and in the life of a healthy church as well. These believers who had the resources were willing to help to meet the needs of those who did not. Now, there are some, I need a drink for this one. There are some that will point to this to make the argument for political and economic systems like communism and socialism and saying true Christians should uh, adopt those particular economic systems. Um, I don't think that's what this is communicating. Communism is a sharing of goods, but it's an enforced sharing of goods. It's from on high, not way, way up high, from the authorities, the powers that be here on the earth, an enforcement of we're going to take from everyone and distribute it out to everyone. It's an enforced sharing on the basis that no one has the right to own anything. Communism is compulsory. Therefore, it has nothing to do with generosity. These early Christians, they shared their possessions not because they were communists, not because they were socialists, 
that were forced to share their possessions, but they shared for a far better reason. They shared because God had moved upon their heart and birthed within them a desire to be generous toward others that had need. They were generous to others because God had been generous to them. So what's going on here in Acts chapter 2, it's very different from the political and economic system of socialism or communism. Because what's going on here wasn't based on an external force that made them do a particular thing, but rather an internal compulsion. There was a change within their heart. It was birthed within their heart. They were loving one another. And that's something that God had created within them. And so there are some that see this as a proof text for communism or for socialism. There are also others that see this as a proof text for communism. Not communism, but communism. That we should sell all of our possessions, buy some land up in the mountains, and we should all go live there. Now, that sounds pretty good, actually, here. I don't, however, think that that's what this particular passage is saying. It doesn't say that we should get rid of all personal property, pull those funds together, and go off and live somewhere together. Again, as lovely as that might sound. The circumstances that were facing these believers were unique circumstances to these believers. All right? And so part of the reason why they were doing the things that they were doing, selling their possessions and having all things in common, is because of the unique circumstances they were facing as a group of people. Let's go back, break it down. There was a sudden influx of 3,000 believers most of whom had traveled to Jerusalem for the holiday, for the feast, and would soon be departing and leaving and heading back home. They came forth in mass numbers, 3,000. They were baptized. When they came out of the water, they weren't given a Bible. Here, here's your Bible. Make sure you read it, and make sure you find a good church that you can fellowship with. We've included inside of your Bible a list of good churches in the area that you live. There were no other churches. It was there in Jerusalem, and that was it. And again, there was no Bible at that particular point of time that they could go back, read, and study, and learn, and be discipled by. There were no others that could disciple them. And so in the unique circumstance, they had to remain there in Jerusalem and be taught by those apostles and grow with those apostles. Now, you've been on vacation in the old days when you would go on vacation with cash in your pocket, you recall. Now we have credit cards, so we have unlimited amount of money. We can spend whatever we want on this vacation. But in the old days, you brought a certain amount of cash or you budgeted a certain amount of money. Well, you can't stay at Disney World forever. One day is all you can afford, probably. All right? You can't stay there forever and spend in vacation mode forever where you're going out and buying all your meals, that sort of stuff. Well, that's what these guys are on. They're on vacation. And after a week and two weeks and a month and a couple of months, doesn't say how long, but after a while of staying in there, they became a people that really needed the help of other people. And so come to our house. Come on, well, we have extra. You can eat with us. And then people soon began to sell their possessions. So they had more money to be able to provide for the needs of others that were there. It was a unique circumstance that they were facing where those with means could help those without means. And so again, it says, and day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And as it says, the Lord added to their number day by day 
those that were being saved. You recall the temple wasn't just the building structure. Very few people went into the building structure. But the temple area included all of those courtyards. And under Herod's uh, renovation of the Temple Mount area, they built all these porches or porticos of sorts where people could sit, they could gather, get out of the sun, and they could be taught. And that's where these people are gathering. They're gathering in the temple, in the courtyard area there, and they're being taught. And then they're leaving there, and they're like, come back to my house, we'll have a meal together. And they're breaking bread in the homes of one another, praising God, as it says there. The joy of their salvation overflowed into every detail of their lives. And it gave them a new sense of purpose in every single one of, their de- in every single one of the details of their lives. I really like the way that one commentator paraphrased this. He said this, God had gilded the mundane of life with a covering of glory. To gild something means to cover it, usually with gold. He had gilded the mundane with a covering of his glory. That every part of their life, Lord, you're just so good. You're here with me, even in this. As I walk the dog and as I go off to work and as I make dinner and as I wash these dishes, the Lord was in there, in every one of those things with him. He had gilded the mundane with the covering of his glory. And what was the result? Verse 47, God used it to draw many to himself. People were watching and people were observing. They saw these people were different. And they wanted a a bit of that for themselves. They saw the wonderful work that had taken place, and I think even more importantly, was continuing to take place in their lives, and they were drawn to it. You remember Jesus said, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses. Well, that's what's being described here. People were watching, people were observing. These folks, without words even, necessarily, they were witnessing to the work of God in their lives, and people were drawn. The world knew them for their love for God and for others. So I'm going to ask you some questions here for you to consider and to chew on. What does the world know you for? What does the world know us as a church for? What does the world know Christians, American Christians, world Christians for? Is it the love that we have for God and one another? Is that what we're known for in these days? Is it the genuine way that we practically love and care for others that are in need? Is it the generosity that we have in response to the generosity that God showed each one of us? Is it for the grace and mercy that we seek to show others because God showed his grace and mercy to us? What are you known for as a Christian? And I hope that deals with some things in our lives. There are a lot in America, a lot of Christians in America, that have a pretty bad reputation these days. I bring it up because it's not me. No. Uh, Of course it's me as well. I think we need as a church, as the church, capital C, I I think we need to go back and consider what is it that we're communicating to the world about what it means to be a Christian? Who are we pointing people to? What are we pointing people to? What demonstrates as, as sort of our primary focus 
in the world and in the society in which we live. And I know some of you are going to be ticked off that I'm even saying this. How dare he? Doesn't he know? And you're already formulating the arguments. Look, your argument's not with me. Do whatever you want. Do whatever you want in your Christian walk. Just make sure you go before the Lord and he's okay with it. Who cares if I'm okay with it? I'm not going to tell you how to live your Christian life. You live your Christian life the way that God is comfortable with. And you can, you can do that, praise the Lord. But just make sure you take some time before him to make sure he's comfortable with it. What were these guys known for? They were known for their joy. They were known for their peace. They were known for the community that formed amongst them. And they were known for the love that they had with one another. Jesus said this. He said, by this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have one for another. And that's what God used to grow this church. There's a huge industry in America, a church growth industry. You can buy all sorts of books and find out all sorts of ways in which to grow your church. Well, God's prescription for church growth is a commitment to his word, true common life fellowship, a devotion to and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and an ever-present dependence on the Lord as demonstrated through their prayer lives. And I believe, we believe as a church, certainly the leadership team of this church, what we're pursuing is that if we continue steadfastly in these things, the Lord will take care to add daily to his church. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this prescription that we have here. Lord, that in your wisdom, you put these things down to paper so that 2,000 years later, we could be considering these things. And, and Father, we want to be a church that is building our church, our gathering of believers on the foundation of these things. Father, we want to be individuals that are doing the same, families that are doing the same. And so, Father, I ask in your kindness that you would minister to our hearts about some areas perhaps we're neglecting as a group of believers and as individual believers. And you would draw us back to those areas, a greater commitment to those areas in our lives. Lord, we're not smarter than you. We're not wiser than you. We trust you. And you made it clear that this is what you have for us, and so we want to be pursuing these things. And Lord, as your conviction perhaps comes into our lives about maybe how we've been living of late, maybe the attitude of our hearts, maybe how we're portraying what it means to be a Christian, Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts to receive whatever it is you want us to receive. Not that we return to you in hardness, but that we would face you square face to face in humility and with openness. Lord, our desire is to come to the end of our days looking more like Jesus than we did earlier in our days. And so use your word to accomplish that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.